You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, you've been teaching in the era of standardized testing, so I'm sure testing has been part of kind of your life, and the public hears about it. Not sure people understand it. How does it affect your teaching? I teach in a non-tested area. I teach social studies. And I know in, in my state, at least, because of the fact that it, history or social studies is not a tested area, that a lot of times, particularly in the early grades, social studies gets no love, and so it's almost removed from the curriculum. And I know that there are parts of our like mass historical society, which isn't the correct name, they're in some cases like almost advocating for some sort of standardized thing so that way we can make sure that we are important, which is really an interesting like concept that you'd almost want a standardized test only so you can finally be covered, which probably lends itself to be like, well, <laughs> wait a second, there's a lot of other problems going on. I've seen that too. It's it's this weird dynamic where no one really thinks standardized tests are good, but they're afraid of being left out of the game because standardized tests have like defined the landscape. When I taught, we um, did have uh, one test that counted for end of instruction in Oklahoma, and that was our U.S. history class. And so of the of the four years of, you, of your social studies instruction, one year really counted towards your graduation, but it was only one of many options. It certainly wasn't as high stakes as your, you know, reading and literacy, English classes and your math classes. And and so it was put kind of what my um, professor I worked under at the University of Oklahoma, he wrote a, an article called Social Studies on the Back Burner. And it was talking about social studies in elementary school and how, and that's been a long concern about does, does civics, does citizenship get taught in elementary school when it's not tested? What's it like teaching future teachers about testing? Like how does that because I feel like there's always like a like a moving scale on you know what things actually mean and what they're worth. It's it is always moving, and that's what's hard because I want to prepare them for a career in teaching, and so I always am planning for how do we prepare teachers for a good career. But the problem is is that tests change every seemingly what four, three, three, four, five years, and so luckily I have some good colleagues who really help them through the some of the hoops they have to jump through. But we have some hard tests, and we have some students who, who struggle to pass them who I think could be good teachers in, mm-hmm. a, in, in areas where we need teachers in the field. I think this is an issue that's been a big issue for a long time. You can go all the way back to – you could go back further, but you could go at least back to the 80s when you had things like A Nation at Risk coming out that, oh, kind, right. of, that kind of said, you know, our schools aren't doing well. And so today we, we're really uh, happy to have on a guest who has been talking about this issue and speaking about this issue – for a long time. And so we'd like to welcome in David Berliner. Hi. Hey, David. How are you? Hi, David. You raised an issue that I would like to comment on about uh, testing. There's been a movement among some of us who um, claim to know a little bit about testing that um, (laughs) we ought to have uh, uh, assessment literacy as a featured part of a teacher education program. Educational psychology has been cut in a lot of places, but even there, they would get two weeks on testing. And since testing has become so important to uh, America uh, and, and, and internationally, given PISA and TIMS and PEARLS and all of those tests, we really need assessment literacy. I mean, the recent release of the uh, PISA stuff 
showed how completely ignorant newspapers are of what those tests mean and how to interpret them. And teachers are having the same problem. So we have a literacy problem in America, but it's not about reading. It's about uh, assessment literacy. Can you give us a little background on the, the PISA thing, which you just talked about? Uh, a number of years ago, what seemed to be a good idea was uh, promoted that we should have international tests. The first one was, I think, in the early 1960s, uh, not by the OECD, but by another group. And I think there were 12 nations, and we placed, I think, 12, and everybody got panicked. And then uh, uh, what has to be kept in mind as the testing has gone on, and PISA now is the more popular one, uh, it does include most of the European Union and lots of affiliated nations. And we generally look mediocre on it. We're, we're close or a little above the international averages in math and science and reading. But what uh, people don't seem to understand about the tests is that tests reflect out-of-school factors. Uh, there, are, there are no standardized tests that reflect teaching, and they don't particularly uh, reflect curriculum. So you're talking about mostly out-of-school factors. And as one example, Finland, which does reasonably well and uh, on the international tests, whatever one you give them, they do well on, uh, it has a childhood poverty rate of 4%. Uh, U.S. does mediocre, and we have a child poverty rate of 22%. Well, um, it, it, ask any man on the street. Um, if one nation has 22% of its kids in poverty and one nation has 4% of its kids in poverty, which nation is likely to do better? I mean, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to need some multiple choice options there, David. Yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been trained. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, what we've got is a lot of our kids in poverty, and, and a second factor, which is crucial, we have a sense of childhood that's very different than, let's say, the Asian sense. The Asian nations always beat us, but their idea of childhood is that after school, a kid goes to a juku school, a cram school, um, a hagwon school, a cram school. Uh, the, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Chinese all have these after-school schools where all the middle class and even working class people spend their hard-earned money to send their kid for another four to six hours after they have four to six hours of school. So when people say these uh, Asian schools are successful, look how good they do on the test, uh, I think a proper response is they're good at test taking. Uh, our kids actually uh, win the Getty Award, the Global Entrepreneurial Development Index. Uh, our kids are third or fourth in the world uh, when, they, when they're adults in innovation. Um, our kids uh, uh, grow up to be leaders of the world in all sorts of ways because we have extended childhood. We give it as a gift to our children, and that builds our creativity. Uh, the fine Chinese scholar, Yang Zhao, he just laughs at us. He says, we don't want to copy those people. He went through that. Uh, he understands what a Chinese education is like. He hates it. He loves the American education because his daughter learns how to run a newspaper. His daughter goes to a debating team. His daughter takes weekends with kids in school. That never happens in a Korean school or a Chinese school or a Japanese school. So our vision of childhood turns out to be a wonderful one. It's a gift we give our kids. Uh, they can drive us crazy when they're teenagers, but we also... Um, they grow up to be actually very uh, responsible and creative adults. I wouldn't trade our system for anything, even though on the PISA test we're doing mediocre. I feel like that describes Michael a little bit. You're, you're responsible and creative, Michael. 
<laughs> I and, and sometimes I do feel much like a man child. So there's that. I'd like to add that for both of you, we, we you mentioned the social studies area. You know, the original reason we we send kids to school, uh, the Jeffersonian reason, was not not to acquire skills to answer tests, but that they would uh, be responsible citizens. So the the less we are concerned with the social studies broadly writ, and and let's say the humanities broadly writ. Uh, the, the less we're living the American dream of our founding fathers. Uh, and, and that's something to keep in mind as our democracy uh, seems to have some trouble uh, in recent uh, years discerning what constitutes truth in a political campaign. Yeah, I think that's an issue we should talk about because particularly in education, I think there's so much misinformation that's out there. Before we go back to that, David, could you tell us a little bit just about your background and kind of how you got to where you are, some of the work you've been doing in your life? Sure. It's an interesting story, I think, even though it's mine, but I think it's interesting. I was a business major after I got out of high school. I was a mediocre student because I, I enjoyed my childhood <laughs> and, and didn't pay much attention to the, what the school wanted. I uh, graduated, went to City College Business School, the Baruch School, the famous Baruch School. Was bored out of my mind there and uh, with a friend, uh, my best friend, who also was in uh, general, ed, general studies in business and economics, um, we thought we'd better open a business uh, to see what business is like. So we were 18 years old. You could drink in New York State at that time. I grew up in the Bronx, working class family, uh, stable, loving. I was blessed with that, even though we didn't have money. And so my friend and I opened a business. We bought a bar and grill at 18 years of age. Uh, we opened what? it up. That's like yes. a dream. <laughs> well, I, it, it made sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this was up in the uh, what was called the Borscht Belt up in Upper New York State. Uh, I was able to, uh, with my friend, buy a uh, concession in a hotel for three months uh, over the summer break. Uh, we bought a bar and grill. So um, I became the bartender because I looked a little older than he did. And uh, I actually had the makings of a beard at 18. And I ran the bar and uh, I met so many crazy people that I switched my major from business to psychology. So that's how I got into psychology. Uh, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist and figure out why these people were so crazy and stumbled into work as a human factors psychologist at uh, Douglas Aircraft and with the American Institutes for Research. I married young, needed a job, go, was going to school part-time. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, UCLA after I left the New, New York region, then Los Angeles State College, as it was called then, and uh, applied to uh, Stanford uh, uh, to go into experimental psych to keep up my human factors work, engineering psychology. And by an accident, they admitted me into the College of Education. And <laughs> it really was an accident. Wait, how does it happen as an accident? I sent my papers into psychology. They rejected me. But they saw I'd done some training studies as a human factor psychologist. So as a courtesy, they sent my papers to education. The guy in education looks at my papers, and he told me this afterwards. He said, I was about to toss them in the bin because you didn't apply to us. When I saw one of your references was one of my old friends I hadn't heard from in years. So I called him. <laughs> and the old friend said, take Berliner. He's a nice kid. Wow. So I entered Stanford School of Education. I go down there. I don't know anything about Ed Psych, but I know Stanford's beautiful. I look at all the archers and I say, you know, they want me, I'm here. And it changed my life. It was such a powerful program. And I found the home that balanced my 
interest in clinical stuff, meaning trying to help the world a little bit, trying to help people, and the experimental stuff, which I loved experimental psychology. It was a perfect place for me to hang out. I started doing research on teaching there. Stanford was famous for being one of the first schools to do research on teaching. Got me involved in micro-teaching and teacher education. Went off and worked for a couple of years in New England. These were the late 60s and missed California too much. New England was much too conservative after living in California during the 60s. Came back to California and went to work for what was then called Far West Lab and now is called WestEd. Today, it's a 500-person organization doing very nice work. My daughter works for them. And uh, worked on teacher education stuff at WestEd. Got in a huge project at that time, literally millions of dollars at a time when that was uh, really big money, called the Beginning uh, Teacher Education Project that turned out to be a massive study of how teachers spent their time. So we studied um, school time. I was in classrooms, uh, literally hundreds of classrooms at that time and uh, met teachers that were marvelous. So my next kind of decade of work, uh, after I did everything I could about understanding how time was spent in school and why, I moved into the area of teacher expertise because I had met so many spectacular teachers. I wanted to study expert teachers. I did that for another decade or so. During the time period, I moved to the University of Arizona Uh, Did my work on expertise there, ended up president of the American Educational Research Association. What did you learn from expert teachers? Well, what I took away was that they were very much like experts in chess and experts in physics and experts in other fields we had studied, including expert waiters and expert taxi drivers. Uh, What they had built is a terrific cognitive system for whatever field they're in. So expert teachers could just do things and think think about things in ways that uh, novices can't. Uh, We now know that teachers are improving for um, 20 years, given recent research by uh, Linda Darling-Hammond's Learning Policy Institute. When I was doing the first work on the growth of knowledge in teaching, we thought teaching growth sort of ended around the fifth or seventh year. But these expert teachers keep learning and they keep getting better at their job. I think most teachers, actually, who keep getting better. So it's a growth cycle. It, It takes kind of recognize now that it usually takes about 10 years, 10,000 hours to get good at something. Uh, You want to be a great musician, 10 years, 10,000 hours. You want to be a great tennis player, 10 years, 10,000 hours. You want to be a great teacher, 10 years, 10,000 hours. But it's not merely, in every one of those fields, it's not merely doing the practice. It's a disciplined kind of practice. It's It's a practice that's concentrated on what did I do, what can I do better? So it's a very uh, disciplined kind of practice. It's not mere practice. If you're just putting in your time, you don't get better. If you're putting in your time in such a way that you profit from your practice, you get better. And we don't help teachers do that. It's interesting. I feel like students probably put in 10,000 hours of being students. Does that make them expert students by the time they you know, turn you know, 16 or by the time they leave high school? Is it a little bit different there? Well, it's a little bit different because I, I just said you have to get good at what you're doing. You have, you have to do the practice. It has to be deliberate. The key word is deliberate practice. If you're a golfer and you try to hit the ball to the same spot uh, 10,000 times, and the 10,000th first time, you'll probably hit the ball to that spot. So it's a very disciplined, deliberate kind of practice. Students don't try to be good at what they do, but those who do, 
they get the A's, they get the high scores on the college entrance exam. They've learned how to take tests. That's the question, right, David? The difference between good students and, and good learners. I, I agree completely. I mean, you have to really be very disciplined in your practice to learn from it. Otherwise, you're merely putting in your time. I didn't want to learn piano, so I didn't profit from my piano lessons. I had an older brother who was great as a pianist. I didn't want to uh, compete in that. My parents paid a lot of money that I never profited from. Uh, on the other hand, I, when I went to school and I wanted, as a doctoral student, and I wanted to learn, I ate up everything, and it was mm -hmm. wonderful. And I kept reading, and it, it's uh, the, the kind of deliberate practice makes you good at something. And it doesn't matter whether you're an oboe player or a student. You have to want to be good at it, and you have to put in your time. So how did you get to um, the topic of high-stakes testing and accountability reform? Because that's, I think, what a lot of people know you for. I was doing my research on teaching, having a good time, visiting classrooms, admiring teachers. And, of course, A Nation at Risk came out in the 80s. And uh, I said, this is bull. Uh, this is nonsense. These people, Bill Bennett is a liar. Um, I, I, have, uh, I don't know quite what to do. And then I went to a convention at the American Psychological Association. I was the um, discussant for a panel of six people, all of whom were condemning the schools. And I remember right at the end of that panel, um, my first comment to them as they discussed it was, which of you have been in a school in the last 90 days and visited classrooms? And I hung up my, I put my hand up. And the six people who had commented did not. I said, how dare you criticize teachers in schools without going in them? You're buying what you're reading in the newspapers. Is that any way for a scholar to be? And I just did this harangue on my colleagues who got angry with me, obviously. Teachers just stood up and gave you a round of applause, I think, from around the world. The APA, there were no teachers, uh, psychological meetings. But I did have two colleagues in the audience, and uh, they shaped what happened next. Uh, one was my co-author of my textbook, uh, Educational Psychology, N.L. Gage, the famous Nate Gage of Stanford. And Nate comes up to me and said, David, you shouldn't speak that way without data. Do you have data? And I said, no, I don't have data. It's all over the place. He said, shouldn't speak without data. And of course, he's right. That's what I try to do in my life. So I took that under advisement. And the next guy who comes up to me is a name you may remember from your past, uh, Jerry Bracey. Jerry was a wonderful critic of the critics. And Jerry was an abrasive person. And Jerry comes up to me and he says, I just wrote on that. I said, what'd you write? And he starts sharing with me what he was writing. And I said, you know, you're right. I need to work on this area. And a week later, I get a phone call. Will I be a guest speaker at the AACTE, the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, at their meeting in February? I was invited to give a talk. They wanted me to talk on expert teachers, and I refused. I said, I've done it 10 years on that. I want to talk about how good American education is. And dead silence on the phone. Well, can you really do that? I said, I can do it. So I took Gage's advice. I took Bracey's uh, stuff that we were trading already. And in six months, I turned it into a paper that became the basis for the book, The Manufactured Crisis. So the paper was all about how people are lying. They're not telling the truth. Here's evidence. Uh, we were able to use a report that came out of the Sandia Corporation, which the uh, Reagan administration had classified. They called it secret. Sandia Corporation, a bunch of scientists, were told with the nuclear arms deal that uh, Reagan had uh, gotten 
they were told, go find another mission because we're not going to do nuclear weapons as much as we used to. So they decided to save American education at Sandia Corporation. And like good scientists, they went out and surveyed the schools. They wrote a report saying there is nothing wrong with the schools. <laughs> the teachers are great. The kids are great. Uh, we got a lot of poverty. We got a lot of problems, but um, you don't have to fix that. Well, that report was classified by the Reagan administration, which had backed the nation at risk and uh, that sort of thing. So it got unclassified when Clinton came to office, but some brave person at Sandia Corporation sent me a copy of this report, and it became part of the basis with the, the manufactured crisis, which I did with my wonderful, recently deceased colleague, the wonderful scholar Bruce Biddle. The manufactured crisis became a hit. I was the, all of a sudden, became a policy analyst, and for the rest of my career, the second half of my career, instead of the study of teaching, I've been using my knowledge of teaching to study the issues about uh, policy. So I did the manufactured crisis and a lot of reports and papers. Then I did collateral damage with Sharon Nichols, a book about No Child Left Behind and how it's going to ruin America. And we were, we were there a few years before Diane Ravitch's book. Uh, she got a lot of play with her book, uh, partly because she was a convert and partly because she also had it right. Our books, we just got word, our book sold 6,000 copies, and that's, that's nice to know. Diane Ravitch has probably sold 50,000, but the argument was changing, and we started it, Diane finished it, and people got to understand that No Child Left Behind was hurting education, it was not helping education. And uh, so collateral damage, how high-stakes testing uh, hurts American education, uh, my book with Sharon Nichols influenced uh, some people. And then the most recent book um, with Gene Glass and 19 of our students is called uh, 50 Myths and Lies uh, That Are Hurting American Education. And again, what we're trying to do is uh, we're trying to be truth tellers. And truth is, you know, uh, social sciences uh, are, are hard to grasp truth from because you can always find a social science report that, the, uh, that whatever you're advocating didn't work. We're social science. It's not physics. In the social sciences, context matters. Wherever you run a study, it may not work. Uh, in physics, it'll work in Buenos Aires. It'll work in uh, Phoenix, where I am. In social studies, it can work in one suburb and not in another. So the question for us in 50 uh, Myths and Lies was, can we put together a cohesive body of evidence that says something to put $5 on, maybe not $100 on, but $5 on. So homework, you know, you take a topic like homework. Uh, well, homework doesn't seem to work well for young kids. People like homework. People think homework's important. Turns out in the elementary school, it probably uh, harms as much as it helps. By the time you get to high school and you have tests to take, homework helps. So what we try to do is distinguish uniforms. I mean, my wife loves uniforms for kids in school. Uh, I'm not against uniforms. I'm against anyone saying they help education, they help learning. Uh, there may be some status involved. Kids like their uniforms, shows what school they go to. But let's get off the uh, stuff that it helps learning. It doesn't. So what we try to do in 50 Myths and Lies is take 50 areas and show that we actually um, can have a different view of them. The grand myth when we did that report, was that Americans don't do well in international competition. And we showed that to be a myth. Our kids who go to schools where under 10% of the families are in poverty, and kids who go to schools where 10 to 25% of the families are in poverty, those two groups will compete with any nation in the world. They constitute about 13 to 15 million kids. 
So why would you say the curriculum is bad when 13 or 15 million kids are doing so well? So we get the common core for no reason. People complain about public schools, and I go, then why is everyone moving out to these public schools in the suburbs? It doesn't seem like public schooling is the problem. When a kid goes to the suburbs, they take their score with them. Oh, yeah, of course. But when a kid goes to a charter school, they take their score with Mm -hmm. them. So the public schools are showing stability in their scores on NAEP. Uh, If you could show stability when the kids are taking their scores and leaving, you're, you're actually achieving quite a bit because you're right. It's the poverty in the neighborhood and the crime rates and the single parent rates and the uh, lack of enrichment programs for kids, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like we've got two issues here that you've really focused on. One is misinformation, which I think speaks to your title, the manufactured crisis, that we don't always have good information in education. And then two, the the problems associated with high-stage testing. So what could you tell educators about each of those issues that would help them understand how they could address them, how they could better inform people, or in some cases be advocates for their students and communities? Well, I think the first thing that has to happen is the political of 3.5 million teachers. Education is political. It's created out of, out of politics. It's funded out of politics. And when you have 3.5 million teachers and very few of them are on school boards or have run for legislature, you get screwed in America. Uh, the people in the legislature are very often insurance uh, men and women. They're lawyers, uh, men and women. They're car dealers. These are not people who are going to vote for spending tax dollars. And if they don't vote for spending tax dollars, you lose your roads, you lose your firemen and women, you lose your policemen and women, uh, you can't support emergency uh, first responders, and of course, you can't afford your schools and your teachers. So teachers used to be paid just a little less than people of similar education. Now they're paid a lot less. Teaching has become harder because of the pressure on teachers, so they leave sooner. We now have evidence that teachers are growing for about 20 years in their competency. And so if you have a turnover rate that's high, you're going to lose, uh, on average, some very good teachers. And teachers need to be political about this. I tell teachers all the time, there's three and a half million of you. There's another three and a half million, at least, of recent teachers that have been out there. Um, There's probably another reserve force of three and a half million teachers. So we're we're talking uh, well over 10 million people who understand our schools. And if 70% of them voted the same way, we'd change America. But it turns out a lot of these teachers aren't voting. I've talked to union members. I've talked to um, all sorts of associations. Teachers are not big on voting and they're not big on political involvement. And uh, one of the things I tell teachers, partly as a joke, but partly um, with some truth is that every fourth night you're grading papers, <laughs> don't. <laughs> go to the Rotary Club, go to the Lions, go to the Women's Auxiliary of the Moose Lodge. Uh, go, go someplace where you can help inform the commons of the problems of schooling. Uh, if kids don't have food, on Monday morning, over the weekend, on Monday morning, you can't teach them, okay? It takes till after lunch for you to have kids who can learn. This becomes a, a problem for communities and community food banks and, and the Rotaries and the Lions Clubs and the glasses the Lions donate, uh, but not everywhere. So what we have to do is get teachers to n- not just be more political, but be political in the commons. You all, you know the data as well as I. The, up until 1970, everybody joined everything. From 1970 on, everybody stopped joining. They stopped joining unions, they stopped joining associations, they stopped joining uh, parent-teachers associations, women were working, television hit the household. 
we need to get back our commons and teachers need to be a, a, an integral part of that. It, it, I, I no longer think the Chamber of Commerce ought to run Rotary Clubs. I think teachers and superintendents and principals ought to run them. We actually just had a, a teacher on who ran for state senate in Oklahoma. Uh, there are 40 teachers who ran for, for legislature there. Well, Oklahoma is uh, so bad that teachers finally figured it out that they better start running because these people are screwing them. That's exactly why they ran. <laughs> that's, I, that figures. Did they? any of them win? I think a few of them did. The guy we interviewed, Sean Sheehan, he did not win, even though he was the Oklahoma Teacher of the Year. But he had a good showing, and I think he's uh, trying to figure out next steps. But that was our exact discussion was on teacher activism. Well, I, I'm a firm believer that we have the numbers and we have the moral authority and we need to be more politically active. Could you explain what are the problems with standardized testing? Why has it not worked, and why will it probably not start to work anytime soon? Well, let's talk about it, the asset of standardized testing. If you want to know where a kid is in a distribution of kids that are like them, standardized test works just fine. If you want to know where a school is in a distribution of schools, the standardized tests will give you that information. Used for those two purposes, you have a valid test. Uh, it's reliable. It's valid. But if you want to use it for judging teachers or judging, well, particularly teachers, we now know, and, and when I say we, I mean the American Statistical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Educational Research Association, the National Council on Measurement and Education are unanimous. Three professional groups are unanimous in saying you cannot make a high-stakes decision from these tests. They are, are, can't be used that way. And the American Statistical Association showed that the typical teacher effect on a standardized achievement test is accounting for about 10% of the variance. So yes, they affect scores, but very little. About 60% of that variation is accounted for by out-of-school factors. Do you have a single mother? Do you have college-educated parents? Uh, how many English language learners are in your classroom uh, this year compared to last? The scores on the value-added assessments, which are a pre- and a post-standardized test looking for gains, the scores go up when you get college-educated, more, more kids with college-educated parents in your class and more girls in your class. And the scores go down when you get more boys in your class and more English language learners. Just the principal who likes you will give you more girls than boys and your VAM scores go up. The principal who doesn't like you will give you more boys than girls and your scores go down. That's as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow. I can guarantee you in the elementary grades, I can manipulate those scores just by the ratios of boys and girls, English language learners, special ed. And if, if the scores are so easily manipulated, you cannot use them to make a high stakes decision. Dana Goldstein wrote a book, The Teacher Wars. The point she makes is this dichotomy between great and bad teachers. And some of the statements that come from people like Arnie Duncan, who said, you know, great teachers walk on water. And it was the idea that these great teachers will go in and can just change everything overnight. And my students and I talk about how that's perpetuated by these superhero teachers in movies, too. Like, whereas most educational gains are a lot more nuanced, like you can make small gains. We live in an America where we have the Western myth. You go into town and Clint Eastwood kills all the killers. So it's a single person can stand up to anything. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have that in our movies. We have that in our novels. John Galt will fix, every, you know, a, a man, a towering man. Um, what we have in America is the myth of the individual, the gunslinger who will clean up the town. And that goes on to the movies made about teachers, too. 
So what we have is the great teacher, the principal who hits kids with the club in New Jersey or the that nice one in Texas where the principal cleans up the school. And what we never have is a movie about the hard work of a community action group that's trying to fix their schools. And that's and the hard work of a teacher's group that's trying to uh, build a professional development community. Um, that's, not, that's not ennobling in the American myth system. So we've got this problem of the myth of the great teacher can walk on water because one great teacher, Jesus, did, according to the Bible. But most great teachers, if they're going to have a great school, have to help mobilize the um, fourth grade, the fifth grade, the sixth grade. Uh, they have to be meeting regularly in, in curriculum groups. And we can't get a single teacher to fix a school very often. Yeah. I can't watch those teacher movies anymore because they just make me like, depressed. It's like, I try really hard. Why can't I be like Matthew Perry in this movie? Exactly. It's the American myth system. You know, it's a, it's a nice myth system. You know, lone gunman comes to town. My students liked Mr. Holland's opus a little better. It's a little more realistic. It's a slow, long career where he kind of makes a difference and learns from mistakes. And But the famous stat that I think um, President Obama repeated was that a great teacher can, what, make up three years of, of school experience? I mean, so is that just misinformation or misunderstanding what the data is showing when we're, when we're seeing these claims that a single teacher can move a student along three grade levels? There's not a lot of data supporting that, though I'm sure it happens occasionally. I mean, there are some terrific teachers out there. Let me uh, switch that on you uh, for a minute, though. What is the percent of bad teachers out there? Bad, really bad. Not just ones you don't agree with, not ones who are too lenient or too hard, not ones that give too much homework or too little homework, but bad, hurting children because they don't know their subject matter or they're cruel and mean and uh, hurting children. What's the percent? I've been asking that question for the last couple of years. I've been trying to get a handle on the base rate of bad teachers. Because everyone it? talks about bad mm -hmm. teachers. Don't hire bad teachers. It's the boogeyman. Exactly. So I've actually been doing unsystematic research on a uh, percentage of bad teachers. And part of this comes out of my uh, testimony at the Vergara trial, when, where it was a, a tenure issue in California, when the judge wanted to know what percent of teachers are bad out there. And I said, one, two, three percent, nobody knows. And they were surprised at how low it was. But uh, they didn't believe me. But I went out after that trial and asked a whole bunch of principals. I asked a whole bunch of teachers. Um, I've been collecting informally data. And I ask you to do the same. What percent of the teachers you've experienced in life are bad, evil, hard? They, they hurt kids. Uh, uh, because of their opinions, beliefs, and, and lack of knowledge. And, the, you know, we're talking about 3%, which is um, sort of the base rate. The other way to look at it is to say, what other field is so blessed as to have 97% of their workers competent or good? The judge didn't see it that way in the Vergara case. You can take the 3% and multiply it by 250,000 teachers and say, my God, there's thousands of teachers that are no good. Well, the other way is that uh, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of teachers that are pretty good. And do lawyers have a, a failure rate uh, any different? Do physicians have a failure rate any different? As near as I can tell, we're pretty darn good by having a bad teacher rate that someone can say this is a bad teacher. That's 3%. And the best principals have 0% in their school. They know how to get rid of the lemons. What advice would you give for educators and the public for what they can do to make a difference in education? 
Well, my, my advice has already been given. I think the uh, education community has to be much more active. Uh, they have to be politically active. I, I was just in Alabama, and they're so underfunded. I've been in New Mexico, and they're so underfunded. Uh, Alabama is about 15% lower in real dollars now than they were 2008. My own state of Arizona is about 20% lower in real dollars than they were in 2008. Uh, our school attendance rates have gone up. Our, our needs for a, a 21st century economy have gone up. And our um, ability to get money out of people in the state to support our schools has gone down 20%. You can't run the country that way. Since the decisions on budgets are political, if teachers are not political, they live at the whim of some pretty nasty people, people uh, who, who are older. The country has gotten a lot older and a lot of people don't want to pay for their grandchildren or they've moved to Arizona and don't want to pay taxes here because they're, quote, other people's children. What we've got is um, a nasty cycle in America and we're not paying the price for a civil society. And I think that could come home to roost and hurt us very badly. So the first thing I'd say is political involvement. Or as Lin-Manuel Miranda said, rise up. Rise up. Yes. That's a I, Hamilton I, reference. I, I, and I've seen Hamilton and I'm proud. I did too. It was amazing. It was wonderful. Yeah. So uh, it was a, it was a great uh, show and uh, yeah, rise up, rise up. I, like I said, I changed my career from an ordinary academic to a, a more politically active one because I realized that without speaking out on issues, I wasn't doing my duty as a scholar. I'm, a, I'm paid by the state to be a public intellectual. And if I wasn't speaking out and writing op-eds and writing uh, for magazines as well as journals, I wasn't doing my job. I, I wish more academics would see it that way. That's a great point, David, that if you're not publishing in places where people can read it and in different formats that people can read it, you know your work's not gonna make a difference. And so you, we've, it's got to make a difference. When I was dean of the college, I told the faculty, I want you to have one foot in a journal and one foot in a classroom or a magazine or a newspaper. I want you writing op-ed pieces as well as uh, pieces for your, for your research career. Uh, a school of education that's not involved in the life of schools is, is just not a healthy one, really. I mean, it may be rated high, and we were, uh, but it's not doing its job as public intellectuals. Well, thank you so much, David. I think you've given us a lot to think about, and we just really appreciate you giving your time. Well, thank you both. I, I think it's great what you're doing and getting the word out and interviewing people who might have something to say that can influence somebody else. David, where can our listeners find you or your work online? I have a, a website, though it's not quite up to date, uh, but they can find Berliner uh, at ASU. Uh, there's a website attached to my name. And, oh, there's a, a biography that got published on um, Review of Educational Research. Uh, goes into detail of some of these events in my life and a little more personal. And other than that, I just recommend reading the 50 Myths book. It's been a lot of fun. We wrote it particularly for school board members, and they have been the ones who've responded the best with the book. They, they, they love it. Wouldn't that be a great gift to give to your school board? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I recommend it highly. <laughs> we'll make sure to put the, the link up to the your books on, my, on our show notes as well. That'd be great. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to continue this discussion online and in other places. And maybe that Rotary Club. Maybe at Rotary Club. And we'll uh, see you there. <laughs>
We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. If you're doing something creative in your classroom or education, we'd love to share what you're doing. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you just want to talk to us, feel free to hit us up on that Visions of Ed Twitter chat. Thingy. <laughs> we don't have a Twitter chat. <laughs> we'll talk to you there, too. Are we starting a Twitter chat? <laughs> no, 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 no. And of course, if you write us a five-star review, we'll totally read it on the air. Maybe we'll sing it. We don't know. Who is to say? Rise up. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretje. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs> <laughs>